You're listening to the Yoga Teacher Resource Podcast. Knowledge, techniques, and inspiration for your teaching and your practice. I'm your host, Mado Hesselink. If you're a yoga teacher who loves learning, is passionate about spreading the benefits of yoga, and desires more resources to support your teaching, you're in the right place. Let's get started with today's episode. Welcome to episode three of the Yoga Teacher Resource Podcast. This episode is about staying grounded in the ethical principles of yama and niyama with a specific focus on ahimsa or nonviolence as a foundation to incorporate ethics into our daily yoga practice and our lives. It's a big topic and an important one. In this episode, my guest Anna Ferguson Robus and I discuss the importance of having an ethical framework why we as yoga teachers might choose the yamas and the niyamas, and how to approach them in an ongoing way to provide structure and support for our growth as a yoga teacher and as a human. Anna Ferguson Robas is a yoga therapist and therapeutic yoga teacher based in Asheville, North Carolina, as I am. Anna and I have been friends and collaborators for a really long time, so it is an honor to have her on the podcast in such an early episode. Anna focuses on addressing the therapeutic needs of all people in private sessions, public classes, series, workshops, and continuing education trainings. She specializes in fostering resiliency and teaching practical yoga skills for those recovering from trauma. Anna is also co-owner of Sacred Roots Wellness, LLC. Sacred Roots Wellness seeks to provide trauma-sensitive services, trainings, and educational programs to individuals, agencies, and stakeholders interested in learning more about how yoga can support healing from trauma. Anna has been teaching yoga since 2007. She is an ERYT 500 registered yoga teacher with the Yoga Alliance, a certified yoga therapist through the International Association of Yoga Therapists, and has been trained in the community resiliency model and the ethics of trauma-informed clinical practice through the Mountain Area Health Education Center. From personal experience, I also know Anna to be an incredibly compassionate human being. She's also incredibly smart and wise and a practitioner. She 100% walks her talk and practices what she teaches. So it is my great honor to allow you to invite you to listen in on this conversation with my dear friend, Anna Ferguson Robus. Hi, Anna. Hi, Mado. <laughs> Thank you so much for taking the time to share your thoughts and your experience about the yamas and niyamas and how they come alive and are relevant and important for our teaching, our yoga practice, and the rest of our lives that interacts with that yoga practice. My pleasure. Thanks for the invitation. So I I'm, have not recorded the intro yet, but I'm sure that I will talk about our long friendship, that this is a real pleasure because Anna and I have been friends for over 10 years. We first met when we were teaching back-to-back. -back. Her class was after mine, and I don't know, we just clicked, and at a certain point, I invited her to teach the artist's way with me, so we've, we've had this business relationship, but that has always been a relationship of mutual respect and kind of growing together, so I have so much respect for you and your work, and um, yeah, so I think it's nice to, to share a little bit of of that relationship with the listener so that they understand the, the context. Another thing is that like, we, we've had such a relationship of honesty with each other. That's important with the yamas and niyamas. I might be less gentle. I, hopefully I'll be very gentle and compassionate as ahimsa is the, is the theme today. But when, if I'm more direct than I would be with somebody I don't know, it's because of our relationship. <laughs> <laughs> Well, we'll find out. I know Anna's cool with it. <laughs> uh, we'll no, find I, out. Yeah. Honestly, Anna, I, I have always been really impressed because I am a direct person and 
I like my, I'm, I'm working on more compassionate language. That's one of the things that I'm constantly working on, but I've, I have always been really grateful for your ability to kind of meet me where I'm at and receive whatever information and feedback that I share in my more direct way. It seems like if you take anything I say personally, that you kind of work with it on your own. And, and I've, I've never really had like, like I've had times where I felt like, whoa, I, maybe I was a little harsh with her there. And, and like, you've always taken it so gracefully. Well, thank, thank you. you. Yeah, thank you. I'm, I'm feeling like a little teary eyed <laughs> at this moment. Just really grateful to have you in my life. Oh, me too. Me too. So with that as the foundation for this conversation, the, the audience for this podcast has probably been through a teacher training and hopefully the yamas and niyamas were covered in that teacher training. Ideally, they were infused through the teacher training as a guiding principle and explicitly so but that might not be the case. It is definitely possible that either the yamas and niyamas were just kind of covered really briefly in, in such a way that some teachers might not have a deep relationship with them or they might not even have been covered at all. So the three questions I wanna start with and feel free to um, ask me to remind you if, if like, you know, three is too much, but Let's just go back to the basics of what are the yamas and niyamas? Where did we get them from? Where did they come from? And why are they important to keep studying even if your teacher training did go in depth with them? Why do we need a long-term relationship with them? Yeah, three really good questions. Um, I'll start with the first one. The yamas and niyamas come from a multitude of texts in the yoga tradition and they are an ethical framework for living basically and the one that we will be referencing most familiarly is the yoga sutras and particularly as uh, they were presented by Patanjali and the reason why it is so important to keep a relationship with this ethical framework is that because it gives us a way to navigate the challenges of not only our yoga teaching, but also our lives. So it gives us a foundation to move forward into this um, exploration of being human. Awesome. You talk about reframing the yoga sutras and I'd love to hear a little bit more about what you mean by the word reframing and why you think it's so important. Yes, reframing most basically is the choosing of what we're going to pay attention to. And a practical example of that is when we're presented with a situation or an event that may not be what we expect or what we wanted. It is an opportunity to live life in a more empowering context. And so a, a really simple example of that is you go to the grocery store and you're really excited about getting your particular brand of tea or coffee. And you get there and suddenly it's not there. Either the store doesn't carry it anymore or it's out or it, they stop producing it or whatever it is. And so you experience a disruption in in your reality. There's a challenge. Um, you might feel some uncomfortable feelings, or you might feel really frustrated. And there's a couple ways you can go about it. One, you can you can choose your reality to be, oh, I don't have. They don't have this particular tea or coffee. I'm so upset. This sucks. This is ruining my day, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. We can kind of see where that road goes. And then there's another opportunity to say, okay, this might be an opportunity to try something new, to try something different. Maybe I'll find something I like better. Okay, let's see what I've got available to me. And so reframing is really the quality of choosing how we pay attention. And it is an opportunity 
to not discount the actual reality. We're not saying that tea or coffee actually does exist if it doesn't. We're choosing how to think about what is happening in our lives. And that is the fabric, the backdrop, the, the air in which we breathe, choosing our quality of, choosing what we pay attention to can shape and frame our lives in very, very different ways. And what this ethical framework does is give you the ability, the opportunity, the empowerment to choose kind of the, the soup you live your life in, what surrounds you all the time. Does that make sense? Sort of. So are you saying that the yamas and niyamas can kind of be like ingredients in that soup where you're consciously bringing them in to pay attention to them and that is going to affect your life, that your experience of your life? Yes. And like any good soup, it's better the next day, the next day and the next day. So the more you kind of let things, the flavors marry with each other, the, the more the, this, this ethical framework starts to enhance your life. It, it, it gives you a richer flavor, so to speak, if you're going to use that sort of example to, to make it more concrete. Yeah. So the yamas and niyamas are these principles that we can choose to bring into our lives in a really conscious way. And by doing that, we more skillfully select the flavors of our experience. Yes. Very well said. So then, you know, that's kind of exciting. <laughs> that's like, oh, yeah. How do we do that, Anna? How do, how do we reframe? How do we bring it into, yeah. into our daily lives? Yeah, and our teaching, yeah. Yeah, so I think the, this is a yoga teacher podcast, so I'll start with how you might bring that into your daily life. So we chose to focus in this episode about ahimsa. And let me just say a little bit about what that is first. Ahimsa is typically defined as non-harming. And there's a lot of traditions that talk about non-harming. But as, as we develop the idea or the understanding of ahimsa, we can use other words like non-violence or self-compassion or kindness. And one of the things that may come up as you teach is we are giving people the opportunity to integrate body and mind. And as we do that in yoga classes and home practice and whatever we're doing, any practice of yoga, parts of ourselves start to come back together. We integrate. Yoga means union. We, you, we bring together pieces of ourselves, our lives, our bodies, our experiences, we start to become a more integrated human being. And as that happens, we might have an emotional reaction, which, you know, for a lot of people is not an uncommon experience in yoga. At some point, you might have an emotional reaction. Does that resonate with you, Mado? I have emotional reactions all the time, Anna. <laughs> <laughs> Right. So remember I had in the beginning of the podcast. <laughs> <laughs> right. Right. Exactly. It was a good one. But. So as teachers, we're guiding people through this integrative experience. And there may be something that happens where a student has an emotional reaction and you might also have an emotional reaction. I think you had a, a really good example of one. Uh, when we were talking earlier. Do you remember what that was? Yeah, you want me to say it? Yeah, that'd be great. You go to a yoga class or you go to teacher yoga class and there's a student there and they're struggling with a pose and they become angry. They feel anger and they project that anger onto you or at least you um, experience that they're projecting the anger onto you and they say, I can't do this with this look in this tone of voice that you might be taking personally like oh I should have given a better pose or you know I mean maybe maybe you're having that reaction maybe you're not but it could be easy to take that on right and so particularly as a as a, a new teacher there's so many things you're already learning to pay attention to you're cultivating your attention to the music or the sequence or the theme or 
exactly how to instruct a pose that when you're presented with this emotional experience, not only is the student having an emotional experience, but you're also having experience where you might say to yourself, oh no, like did I do something incorrectly? Did Could I have done something better? You might not even feel a little guilty or something like that. Think, ah, did I do something that directly challenge this person that I could have done differently. So there's there's a lot going on, right? Someone, your student or your class is is they're having this experience and you're having experience and where ahimsa can really come in and resource us is stepping back from that situation for a moment and saying, "Wow, okay, I'm going to hold myself in compassion." I'm going to hold this other person in compassion because we're both having really challenging experiences right now. They may be new. I don't know any yoga teacher, no matter how experienced they are, if a student is struggling and something is happening that they don't feel some kind of relationship to deal with that, right? How we deal with it is is completely individual, but that's our that's our mission is to be the guide, is to be the facilitator, the teacher. So we're in this relationship and we're trying to figure out how to help and that can bring up all sorts of things. So when we use compassion as a foundation for everything in our practice, then it gives us the feeling of resource. It gives us a feeling of grace in order to say, okay, maybe I can think about exactly how to deal with this situation because I'm not so mired in how guilty I might feel or uh, how angry this student might feel. It gives us a sense of being able to be curious about how to, how to help the situation and find a way through it. I love that. And I love that you use the word resource because that's the name of this podcast. <laughs> oh, and yeah, uh, definitely. yeah. so my <laughs> intention, my, my highest vision for this podcast is to provide resources. So I love how you pulled that in, that the yamas and niyamas are resources. They are, you know, they can give you energy. They can give you um, the capacity to tap into your, your inner wisdom. They can give you the capacity to tap into poise. And for today, the, the focus is on, is on compassion. So that's really awesome and helpful. So that that particular piece of compassion is is where I would say everybody can start. Yeah. And it's it's such a basic fundamental piece to the ethical structure because as we move forward in our own practices and as we guide others moving in their own practices we are going to encounter challenges that will challenge our sense of self-worth. They will challenge our skills. They will challenge all sorts of things. And if we have this basic practice of compassion, then it can really be the resource to guide us through some of the more difficult things like being really honest or yeah. doing things right or dealing with power. Yeah. It really, it really is one of those things that I view as central to my interpretation of, of life. And it's the main ingredient in my soup, so to speak. Okay. That's, that's a good, I love coming back to that, that metaphor again. So I want to let the listeners know also that at the end of our conversation, Anna's going to lead a short compassion practice that we're going to invite you to, uh, to include in your own practice for at least for this week. Try it on for one week. And if it's helpful for you, of course, it would be a beautiful thing to keep permanently. But that's going to be the, the inspired action step for this episode. Yes. And I will, I will lead that practice, but I'll also make available to your listeners a compassion practice they can download and use on their own uh, that I've recorded. Awesome. There'll be, that'll either be in the show notes or, or there'll be a link to it in the show notes. So I want to talk about mental health for a moment, because you talk about the yamas and niyamas as being key to mental health. And I want to ask you to 
describe a little bit more what you mean by that, how you know it, like what's what's the source behind it? Yes. So the yamas and niyamas are, are really key to mental health. An ethical framework is such a boon to a state of good mental being. And what happens is, over the course of our lifetime, the ethical frameworks or the moral frameworks that we are presented with as children, as young adults, as we grow, are challenged either by trauma or other influences. And so what happens is as we grow and as we grow bigger brains and as we get to be an adult and we have experiences, our ideas of the world are challenged. And what can happen is the moral or ethical frameworks that we are raised within can not quite fit anymore or can be completely destroyed sometimes. And so what the yamas and niyamas offer is a mostly secular, there is some spirituality in them, but I, I view even the spiritual parts as um, not towards any specific religion. What they can provide for us is an, a foundation with which to interact with the world and have it make sense again. Because what happens when we lose our sense of, of our, our moral compass, sometimes people say, is we don't really know how to interact with the world. We don't know what's right and what's wrong, what works and what doesn't work. And sometimes we can get a little scattered in how we respond to things. And I talk about the neurobiology of why this is in my trainings. But the basic idea is our gut instinct, or our intuition about what works and what doesn't work gets uh, foggy because we have experiences that just don't make sense. It turns the world upside down. And so when we can engage in this ethical framework, a lot of which these ideas make common sense to people, like honesty and not stealing and taking responsibility and, and uh, non-possessiveness, and we'll get more into those at other, other podcasts. What it gives people is the opportunity to have this foundation to walk forward into the world again and say, I know what to do when I'm presented with a challenge that makes me feel confused about what works and what doesn't work. Right. That's, that's really important. And I would add to your first uh, introduction about that our our frameworks can, the frameworks we grew up in can be challenged, but they can also be um, really perverted for one thing. Um, they can be, so sometimes people don't grow up with an explicit ethical framework, right? So we're, they're getting these implicit messages and sometimes, you know, sometimes those messages are actually opposite to what, you know, the, the common understanding of ethics are because even though we're talking about this one tradition, there's nothing, well, there's not nothing in this, but in general, these are, these are, like you were saying, these are concepts that people can easily see themselves and they can be like, yeah, that's ethical. Yeah, that's ethical. But that's not always the messages that we're getting as a kid and not everybody, right? So, so sometimes the ethical frameworks we grew up in are either perverted, and I, I don't use that term in the sexual sense, but I just mean that we may be getting messages about ethics that are not congruent with the, the general agreed upon common themes of ethics um, for people who think about these things. And they also just may be missing pieces. Yes. And we also may be being surrounded by messages that counteract those ethical frameworks as well. Oh, you mean like uh, hypocrisy? Like saying one thing, but doing the other. Yes. Or the media or, you know, social media or all kinds of, there may be all kinds of influences that are telling us one thing and our ethical frameworks are telling us another thing. And there's this dissonance that is really confusing. Um, and when you have something else interrupt that sense of ethical framework that you might have, then the world gets very confusing. And it's hard to know what to trust and how to move forward. So I think what I'm hearing and what 
I'd like to say explicitly is it sounds like you are recommending engagement with your ethical framework, whether it be the yamas and niyamas, or if you happen to have another ethical framework that works for you, that engaging with them, perhaps on a daily basis, but at least on a regular basis, is part of your yoga practice. Yes. And that goes to the actual daily lives piece of your question a few minutes ago, is not only is this helpful in our teaching, but it's also helpful from the moment you get up and go into the kitchen in the morning to the moment you turn off your light at night. What our ethical framework does, and, and our ethical framework can be whatever we choose, but what our ethical framework does is give us the signposts and the guideposts for our decisions in life. And something really struck me about a speech I listened to recently it's called This is Water by David Foster Wallace, is that everybody worships something in their life. And it could be money. It could be your religion. It could be, I mean, it could be so many things, but everybody worships something. And at some point in our lives, we have to ask ourselves, what do we worship? What do we hold as our guiding principles for our decisions in our life? And when when our worshiping has been interrupted by trauma or any of the other things that we've talked about, we need a way to access that guidance again. And what the, what the, the yamas and niyamas offer is something to focus on or use the word worship that gives us a really in-depth picture of the challenges that we might experience in life and the opportunity to notice when we have decisions to make. That makes sense. So one of the things that you and I talked about earlier was that this conversation can make it seem as if, as we deepen our practice to the yamas and niyamas, that everything always gets clearer and that, you know, that, that it's like a linear progression to, well, for lack of a better word, enlightenment, right? We just get closer and closer and closer. <laughs> right. <laughs> so do you want to talk about your, your vision of this relationship as more of a spiral? Yeah, I find visual relationships really helpful to understand and explain the yamas and niyamas. And I, when I first started studying, I thought you went from the from the beginning to the end, the first limb of yoga to the eighth. And I was like, oh, great. So it'll just be this nice linear progression towards the end and I'll be free and enlightened and it'll be great. But that's not actually how I've experienced the world and how it's happened for me. And I've, I've checked in with a lot of my students and friends and it, this seems to be accurate. So I hope it's helpful. But this very practical way of visualizing ethics and the yamas and niyamas is that we start out at some point in our lives learning about the yamas and niyamas and ethics. And, and as we go forward through space and time, it's more like a spiral moving forward through that space and time. So if you can visualize like a slinky, you know, like you're kind of going around and around and around, but you're moving forward in your life and gaining more experience. And what happens is, is that you move through things kind of like in a circle. You, you circle back around to things over and over again. And you're never at the beginning of the slinky. You're always forward. Like the slinky, it, it extends towards, you know, wherever the end of your life may be. Right. And you understand these principles more and more and more in deeper and deeper ways as you study them and go forward and you get progressively enlightened, you know, and I view enlightenment as, you know, you, you take a, a veil off or you, or you uh, discard a thought process that was weighing you down and you, you understand things more deeply. And that's what enlightenment means to me. It doesn't mean you're this, you know, enlightened being that sits, you know, in meditation all day, you just understand things more. And so therefore you feel more free. And that it's a, it's that enlightenment is a never ending, at least this is how I'm going to share my understanding of it. It's not an end point. At least I don't, 
I don't see an endpoint that is accessible. I know that there are some yoga traditions that talk about like enlightenment in this lifetime, but we're all becoming more enlightened, one hopes, with our practice, but that it, it's, there's not a point where it ends, where like all of a sudden it's, it's you know, there's no more suffering because you've achieved this, this point of truth. I'm not, like I like to hold, hold out some possibility that it, it is possible to do that, but I haven't honestly seen any evidence that really makes me believe that humans are capable of this now. Yeah. So. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I certainly thought that when I started practicing yoga, but now I definitely don't think. Right. That and some people point. do think that. And, you know, I, maybe I'll have a conversation with one of those people one day on the podcast. Right. But part of my experience with this, you know, this process is that a lot of times you still are going to come up against experiences that where you don't know what to do. And maybe even the yamas and niyamas aren't giving you clarity. And, you know, there's like that feeling of confusion. And, you know, again, like you were talking about, you have emotional reactions to that because confusion is not a place that we like to be. We like to be in a place of clarity, most of us. So one of the one of the things that I see as like a, a mark of progress is when we can have those moments, whether they're in a yoga class or they're in a conversation with our spouse or our child or, you know, our boss or whatever it is, where we have an emotional reaction, we have confusion around the right action, the right thing to say, the right, the right practice to go into. And instead of immediately rejecting that confusion and feeling like that means my practice is not working to actually embrace the confusion and see this as a growth opportunity sort of like we were talking in the you know before the podcast started about how you, you and I both felt a little nervous to to do this to, because this podcast is new to me and um the format's new to you too that but instead of instead of rejecting the nervousness, we were like, okay, let's let's do it. Let's you know, let's use this nervousness to make an amazing podcast. So I think that the state of being confused is not wrong, and it's not counter to our growth. It's like, what do we do with that state of confusion versus? you know, what led to it or why do we have it? So we have a state of confusion. That's inevitable. We're human. Let's make some space around our reaction to it. And let's avoid this, um, the second arrow, the concept of the second arrow I learned from Tara Brock, who's a, a meditation teacher in the Buddhist tradition. And she does Dharma talk. She has a podcast. I'll link to that in the show notes. So she talks about the second arrow as being the story around the emotional reaction or the story around the situation where you have a difficult situation, perhaps an emotional reaction, and then your brain starts making up stories, judging yourself, judging the other person. That's the second arrow. The first part is, was perhaps inevitable and is perhaps a growth opportunity. But the negative stories and the, you know, the self, the negative self-talk coming back to Ahimsa around this, that's the second era. That part is unnecessary because if we can embrace the state of not knowing and the state of confusion, that's where it's going to lead to something. That's where it's going to lead to potential growth and eventually back to clarity and then back out of clarity. But I think this is a really important stage of of growth along the path is that stage of recognizing the moment of confusion as opportunity versus something to avoid or something bad or something that's like a negative milestone. Yes, I, I totally I agree with that. And that feeling of confusion, that feeling of stuckness is actually kind of the point of grace. It's the point where if you can combine your sense of your your ethical framework with this sense of confusion, the stuckness, this challenge, whatever you're you're faced with, 
then if you can bring those two together and say, okay, ethics, interact with this, this situation that I'm in and help me move forward and integrate into a new level of understanding, that's a real opportunity. Yeah. The real opportunity to, to live a happier life through clearer comprehension of what to do when faced with that really uncomfortable feeling because our ego will come up in that situation. You know, our, our habits of wanting to be perfect, our not wanting to seem, you know, uneducated or stupid or whatever it is, particularly those challenges of being as a teacher, you know, being put on a pedestal, people think you have it all figured out and you don't. It gives you that sense of humility to say, okay, this is something I don't quite understand yet, but I'm open to it. And, and you can hold it in compassion, like we talked about earlier and say, okay, this is my new understanding. This is my opportunity to assimilate and integrate this, this experience so that I can grow and learn. And that can be really difficult, particularly if the presentation or the problem is very challenging to our egos. Uh, and so it just gives us a lot of, a lot of resource to know what to do when we're faced with challenging situations. The other principle that this particular, you know, concept brings to my mind is Ishvara Pranidhana. And Mm -hmm. I'm curious if you also have the same sense or maybe a different yama or niyama, but, you know, Ishvara Pranidhana is that, that sense of surrender or giving over to something bigger, service to something bigger. But sometimes I think it's helpful to to feel into the quality of the yama or niyama and and for me the quality of ishvara pranidhana is the one that i want to bring up in those moments of confusion and i think absolutely ahimsa also which is the main focus of this podcast this conversation not to skip ahead too far but yeah Ish, do you think that ishvara pranidhana is is also at play or or perhaps centrally at play in in that sort of situation? Yes, I think there is a a real element of surrender in the fact that we have to let our guard down. We have to become vulnerable in a sense. And that takes an element of surrender. We have to become vulnerable in order to integrate and learn. If we keep the walls up, then the confusion and the ethics can't meet. Mm. we have to learn to be to embrace a sense of vulnerability as a teacher that takes some skill and practice because we so dearly want to be right we so dearly want to do the right thing right and that's a very honorable thing to do as a healer and as a teacher and we also have to realize that that we are on this continual process of learning and growing and understanding and even as I say this now, this conversation is so good to have at the beginning of this podcast because there are going to be moments where this podcast is going to give you ideas that directly challenge your sense of reality. You're directly challenged of what you think might actually be the quote unquote right thing to do. And if we have that beginner's mind, that vulnerability, that openness, then we can entertain possibilities that maybe totally outside our realm of understanding and even be really challenging, but might actually be the idea that lifts our teaching up to the next level. That's really beautiful. And I had never connected the term and concept of vulnerability directly to Ishvara Pranidhana before. So I really love that. That feels intuitively like, the, you know, because sometimes you have these concepts, like Brene Brown talks about vulnerability. She's like one of this, this major, you know, teacher out there about vulnerability. So you'll be introduced to these concepts and sometimes there's not an immediate connection into the yamas and niyamas. Um, but I love when it does happen when all of a sudden I'm like, oh yeah, that's clearly the essence of Ishvara Pranidhana. That, you know, because I, I, it doesn't, get, that's not the traditional way it's taught, but when we, you know, if we can listen to the traditional way it's taught and think about or, or feel into, well, what's the essence? What's the feeling tone 
of that teaching, then we can start to see concepts that are that are more modern and more like you know more current into in our culture that connect with that. So that's a really beautiful uh, teaching, and I want to thank you for for sharing that with me. Oh, you're welcome. I think I find it a really inspiring concept, so I'm glad it resonated with you too. So. I think it's time to wrap up the conversation for today. And I know that before we wrap up, you're going to share a brief compassion practice with the listeners and you're, you know, with the invitation that you, you listeners, that all of you bring that into your personal practice this week, hopefully daily. Are you ready for that, Anna? Absolutely. And I'll just remind the listeners that they, there will be a download available that they can use and access so they don't have to use this podcast every time. They can, um, they can take the recording and, and put it wherever, they, wherever works for them and, and use that opportunity to practice. So I'll just do a shortened little, little practice so you can get a feel for it. And then you can enjoy the longer practice as as you have time and and download it. Does that work for you? That's perfect, Anna. Okay. So I invite you to find a comfortable seated position. If sitting is not comfortable for you, then I invite you to lay down or find some, some way where you can be relaxed but still pay attention. And then I invite you to check in with yourself and see how you're feeling today. Sometimes I'll use a 1 to 10 rating for myself. I might rate my stress or rate how my body's feeling. And that gives me an idea of where I'm at. Not necessarily I don't judge about what it is. I just notice that's kind of how I'm feeling. and, And that gives me a sense of how to help myself. And then I invite you to take a breath in and out, maybe breathing in through the nose and out through the mouth. And feeling in a settled place to move forward with this practice. So I'm going to offer you a few phrases to help with compassion meditation. And compassion meditation has three aspects to it. It's recognizing that suffering is happening, recognizing that um, you can acknowledge it, that it's real, and then doing something about it. And so this compassion meditation is our our kind and compassionate action for ourselves in this moment today. I invite you to call to mind a simple, easy, loving relationship. This may be a person or a pet or even a place that you really love and care for. And I invite you to offer these phrases to that person, place, or thing that you have thought of. May you be safe. May you be happy. May you be healthy. May you live with ease. May you be safe. May you be happy. May you be healthy. May you live with ease. 
And as you sit here, I invite you to allow those feelings of good wishes towards this person, place or thing, to really settle into your own body. Maybe feeling in your body where you feel this good wish to be. Maybe it's in your heart or your belly or your head. And I invite you to place a hand on that part of your body. And gently return these wishes to yourself, repeating these phrases. May I be safe. May I be happy. May I be healthy. May I live with ease. May I be safe. May I be happy. May I be healthy. May I live with ease. I invite you to check back in with yourself. See how you're feeling. See what you notice. Notice any sensations in your body. And I invite you to take a breath to release this practice. Maybe breathing in through the nose and out through the mouth two to three times. May all beings find peace and may all beings be free from suffering. Namaste. That was beautiful, Anna. Thank you. Such a pleasure to participate in the inaugural episode of this podcast. I really do deeply, deeply appreciate it. So... If my listeners would like to find out more about you, where can they find you? They can find me at vibrantheartyoga.net. And I will make sure that you have a, that recording to be downloadable uh, for your listeners. And that will also have information uh, about where you can access and, and find more information. Beautiful. Thank you so much, Anna, for sharing your wisdom and your experience on this podcast. It's the first interview that I have done other than um, my, one of my students interviewed me and then I did a solo show. So technically it's the third podcast, but um, really a honor and pleasure to have you on, sweetie. And um, We'll talk again soon. I'm going to hit end and uh, unless there's something else you want to say to the listeners. No, just thank you so much. I really enjoyed it. And I look forward, I look forward to more fun uh, conversations. Awesome. So that was my very first podcast interview where I was the host and I had a guest on there. I have to say that I feel like I am in a huge learning curve right now. There are definitely a million different factors that I am not experienced enough to think about. And it's like one of those things where 
you think that because you're knowledgeable or passionate about a topic, that that means that you can do a podcast on it, or I'm speaking for myself here, but I'm realizing that there are a ton of other skills that I have never even thought about that are necessary for for me to make this podcast really good. And of course, I want to make it really good. <laughs> so I first just want to thank Anna, my first guest, for her patience with me. She was incredibly patient. I think I was a bit of a pain in the butt, I have to say, with trying to figure out what my voice is and what what the format for this podcast is, which is definitely evolving as I learn. However, I do hope that even though these are the early episodes and I'm still finding my feet, that you get some value out of them, that they're interesting to you and that you learn something. I really hope that you do check out Anna's website and her social media. There'll be links to all of that in the show notes, but If you want just to be able to hear it, the easiest way to find her is vibrantheartyoga.com. I do appreciate any and all feedback, especially if it's presented in a kind, constructive way. If you are willing to go on Apple Podcasts or iTunes and leave some stars, leave some feedback, that would be amazing. And if you want to leave me any personal or private feedback, you can use the email address helloyogateacher at gmail.com. I don't check that one as often as I do my personal email, but I will read all of them once a week or so. So I'm definitely curious to hear from you. Would love your feedback. Would love your ideas for other episodes and topics. So please stay in touch. And be well.